Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kilowatt. My name is Bodie, and I am your host. And on today's episode, I sat down with Edwin Xiao, and we discussed how um, difficult it was to ha- to find locations for superchargers in and around New York City. It was a fascinating talk, and you're going to enjoy it a lot. So let's go ahead and welcome Edwin to the show. Edwin? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Bodie, and thanks for letting me on. A few weeks ago, you happened to email me and you said that you were part of that initial team of Tesla employees that uh, installed superchargers around New York City. Before we get into that, though, I do want to just kind of get an idea. What, what years did you work for Tesla? When, when did this all take place? And then what was the feel of the company while you were uh, working for them at that time? Sure. Towards the end of 2000. 17 to the beginning of 2021, I was at Tesla, part of their supercharging team. It was like a nine interview process where you had to interview everyone from, you know, your fellow colleagues, your manager, all the way to the head of supercharging for the world at that time. And then you're also in contact with other executives. So it was a long process. It took about four months to interview for, for Tesla. Prior to that, I had just recently finished my venture at providing housing for international students in New York City and uh, was looking to go back into something a little bit more structured. And I joined the team in December of 2017. What drew you to the supercharger team? So I have a very unique background, different from everyone else on the team. A lot of people were mechanical engineers some sort of type of engineering background. I do have that as well. I have a master's in construction management from Columbia and and New York University with a minor in civil engineering. My undergrad was in Boston College in finance and economics. And I worked mostly for real estate development companies and construction companies. I was the head of construction management for a large Marriott developer in New York City. 
uh, did that for five years and uh, ran my own real estate company for about seven years. So, you know, I have like a little bit of a mixture of what they were looking for because they wanted someone who could talk to the real estate people, but also had that technical expertise as well. Okay. So it sounds like you were, your role there was to be a translator from the geek side of things to the business slash government side of things. Right. I did end up studying electrical engineering while I was at Tesla. But yes, they when they initially hired me, it was to basically put these projects together, which seemed a little bit sophisticated. In other companies, you probably have multiple people doing it. Here they wanted, like, let's say, one person to run an entire deal from start to finish. Okay. So before we jump into this, because we were talking before we started recording, this could be very very confusing to the lay person who doesn't deal sure. with this kind of stuff at at any level, right? Even if you're in government, this still could be confusing. So you suggested that you give a little context. I think that's a great idea. Why don't you give us some context before we jump into like the meat of our questions? Okay. So the goal of the Tesla supercharging program was to provide charging infrastructure as almost like a marketing strategy at first to entice uh, people that were feeling range anxiety to buy electric cars. Now, most of the questions that people get before they purchase an electrical car is where do we charge? So in response to that, it was initially part of their marketing budget to basically provide supercharging for their, their customers. So the mission was to basically to eliminate or at least to lessen the blow of not having such a wide range of options to charge cars on the road. Okay. So when you started on the team, was yeah. there superchargers around New York City at all? Or So when I, when I started on the team, and it's a very small team, for New York City, we had, you know, for the tri-state area, we had three people initially. Throughout the country, we had like less than the number of states. So less than 50 people at that time. And we had supercharging in a couple of the garages. We had really good connections with like some of the garages in Manhattan. But it was like you had to pay for it and it would cost you extra extra money just to park there and then you would get the charge. Okay. Was that level three DC or is that level two? That's supercharger. However, there were two types of superchargers. Now you had urban supercharger and you also had the regular superchargers you see on the highways. The urban supercharger was a lot slower. I forget what the output was, but we, we were space limited there. So you can't have these giant you know, infrastructure components in like small cramped New York City garages. So we had to make, the, make it a lot slimmer. We had to also you know, condense the footprint of it you know, just pass through permitting. So yeah, it was, it's a different, it was called an urban charger for anything which was in like a garage indoor setting. Okay. And then you kind of touched on this a little bit, but New York is, New York city is huge. I mean, there's, there's very dense urban areas and then there's some of those outer boroughs, which aren't quite as dense, but would still be a big city throughout most of the United States. Yeah. What were some of the challenges for installing those superchargers? I would say in Manhattan, the, the biggest challenge there was finding a place with space. So we were looking 
at a lot of our garage partners and, you know, we could only do urban charging, but we wanted to do like regular charging there. One of the places we were looking at were undeveloped sites, but then let's say there's like a McDonald's in the near Columbia University and it's an undeveloped site and, you know, we have enough space to do uh, supercharging. By the time the deal comes together, which may take anywhere from six months to two years, um, that site gets sold and then we lose the deal. Because the scarcity of space, undeveloped properties get interested in putting supercharging there. But then you lose it because real estate development costs and real estate development profits are so much higher. And here it's basically only amenity to the site. So, you know, you get you get knocked off. And so like in Manhattan, it was finding like, you know, suitable charging there. We did end up finding in the northeast side of Manhattan at this site where Target is. I worked with a real estate developer. We found a lot of excess power, but, and it was enough to do like maybe 20 superchargers, regular, you know, superchargers there. However, we had to work with the utility. It was going to be very cost prohibitive. It's going to be like, you know, like a million dollars plus in order to bring power there and, you know, new power there. Initially we found existing power. Finding existing power is actually the hardest component because most of the time you have to bring a new service. There we found in the Northeast of Manhattan existing power, but they needed it for like these high rise apartment buildings that they were intending to build it on and they didn't want to use that existing power. So then we had to bring in new service and new service was, was possible, but it would cost like, because of all these intricate runs, it would cost, you know, a million plus dollars to bring it there. And so these were all like, you know, prohibitive in, in, in Manhattan and also the, the, the pricing in New York city in general, the utility pricing is ridiculous. So your demand charges, if you're at like a Manhattan garage, the average cost to fill up for like a Manhattan garage may end up being like $100 per user for the month because, you know, for that car, because we're basically subsidizing everything. If you have a new service in there, you're going to be hit with demand charges because you only have the supercharging as your only source of output. Whereas if you have, let's say a large building and you're found excess power there, then what you're able to do is use the mixed blended rates from the building and basically be able to get a lower cost. So that might be the difference between like, let's say, you, you know, the cost of the utility being $34 for like a full car from empty to like $100 or, you know, $150 for a full car from empty. A lot of what we're discussing right now is supercharging. In Manhattan and in urban cores, it actually doesn't make sense to have a lot of supercharging. Bodie, do you know why? People in Manhattan rarely drive. And um, they parking, street parking, there's a lot of street parking. So that's, that's, that's one aspect of it. So... In the tabloids, you see it all the time, like Alec Baldwin fighting people for parking spots. Like that's what happens. There is limited off-street parking, right? If you could park there, you have alternate side parking, which is, means like you could park there for like six days. And then that one day where they have the street sweepers come, you have to make sure that, you know, you're either in the car and then like then you could park again, because parking in Manhattan is expensive. It costs probably between... 500 to $1,000 for a parking spot. 
If you own an EV, it's considered an exotic vehicle in some places, it costs a lot more. Okay. No one is using supercharging in, in Manhattan unless you're from outside of Manhattan. So what do you do when, when you know, on the day-to-day basis? Well, we had a network of level two chargers of about now it's probably about like, you know, close to a thousand level two chargers throughout all of Manhattan, multiple sites, every single garage almost. So we had a program back then where you're installing free chargers, free installation throughout all of Manhattan. So like, and also then I, I did it for all five boroughs. So like I was the first person to do that. So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's how you do it. You have level two charging, which is basically anywhere from like a 40 amp circuit to a hundred amp circuit. And you're getting per, per hour, anywhere from 24 miles per hour up to, you know, like 55 miles per hour. So that's, that's how you do it. And the cost of infrastructure is a lot less actually, you know, for an installation for a level two charger, maybe like $5,000 installation for a supercharger, maybe anywhere from like, let's say 20 to $30,000, you know, could even go up to like $40,000 at that time. So you're, if you have limited resources, what you try to do is what I tried to do back then is try to devote more time towards level two charging. So you have more access because it doesn't matter how fast you're charging. As long as you have some charging, it sort of seemed to make sense. So was the marketing pitch on the free land to the, to the property owner? Was it, you have a business, like say it's a restaurant or a target and people are going to come here specifically because they can charge or was there something else to that? I mean, that seems like the most obvious one. So, yeah, you know, like how I would structure it is I would say to them, we could bring you these customers that are almost forced to come to your property because you're a large dot on the map. And, you know, when they get out of the car, they're going to grab something to eat, use the facilities. And these are people that could afford cars that are, you know, $80,000 plus. So do you feel that it could be helpful for you? Of course, they're going to say yes. And it's like, okay, if I could get you a lot of these customers, you know, would you be willing to, in exchange for that, offer us the land? Because we're not going to be able to capture the value of the new business that we're bringing in. Okay. And then, man, I had, I had something else I wanted to ask you on the, on the Manhattan ones, but it's escaping me. So maybe it'll come back. I'm not familiar with New York. I've never been there. Yeah. What's, the, what's the next biggest borough? that you would okay. have to install these in. Brooklyn was where we had to find sites as well. And the first site that we had at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, again, we met through our garage operators, GMC. Bringing power there was was a pain. We were finally able to get it open a couple years later. So I was scouring everywhere. In Brooklyn, there's like a large site where the former Toys R Us site is in Sheepside Bay area, near Bensonhurst area. And we were working on those deals for like two, three years. And with some some, some type of success, but then ends up being like, you know, large negotiations. They want they wanted, you know, a lot of rent. So that deal eventually ends up dying. There's one near where I grew up in Starrett City. Again, initially it made sense. By the time that I left the company, we're still looking at it as a related property site. It's just that the 
trenching and underground boring was so cost prohibitive because it was like going across the entire parking lot and you know the average cost for each of those the construction costs would end up being like you know fifty thousand dollars per per stall there's another target site in midwood in the middle of nowhere which could have been really helpful for you know our customers near brooklyn college we were able to do our due diligence on it we set the funding up for it however after doing a lot of engineering we realized that we would not receive the type of demand there based on our analytics to make it a eventually profitable site, at least not in the first couple of years. So we end up not doing that. So that's like a little bit of the mindset. I look at our map and I'm like, all right, these are where it makes sense. And then I start looking for where the parking might be. Open parking, parking structures are better than enclosed parking structures because open parking structures don't require you to pay money for it, right? So like you don't have to pay for parking and charging. There's two ways to think about this. It's like, one is, do you want to create the best sites? Or two is, is like, you want to just create as many sites as possible. And some people at Tesla, how they are is they just want to keep their job, right? So they're not trying to be innovative. They're trying to just be like, all right, well, if we have one partner we scale with, then like, let's say like Wawa or something like that back then, we're just going to do as many Wawa sites as possible, right? And then you have the balance of that, which is like, well, if we do as many Wawa sites as possible, you know, that's going to be great because, you know, you're going to be able to do us a lot of sites, but they're not always in the most, you're not going to have Wawa's in Brooklyn. You're not going to have Wawa's in Manhattan. Well, there's a couple of things. One is around this time, Tesla started charging for supercharging. At that time, if you bought a Model S or a Model X, you would get free supercharging for life. And if Tesla especially in a place like Manhattan, you probably pay to be a member of a garage. So every day, multiple people are plugging their car in and they're charging up $100 worth of electricity. That gets quite expensive for Tesla. So just want to make that clear. Immediately, it wasn't going to be a a recouping thing like it is now. They They can start recouping their money pretty quick. I don't know that they're going to get all of it back pretty quick, but they can start actually charging for those locations. Whereas before you've put something in, like you said, at the, the target that was in the middle of nowhere, that might never make back its money, or at least, you know, in the, not in the next six, seven years. And yeah. then you, you, you're talking about your, the negotiations with the, the business owners and the landowners. Was there any pushback from the local governments? The local governments generally were very amenable. You have to go through a public process when you're ever you do site, site plan changes. So let's say you're doing a site plan change. Like the building department in New York City was not that bad, I would say. Outside of New York City, in more village areas, in towns and stuff like that, that's when you have more political processes in place, actually. In New York City, it was relatively easy. Like how it's done is you have the pre-construction phase where you're designing everything, you're submitting it, you're using expediters, you're using engineers, and then... You stamp the plans, you submit it, they review it, they come back with comments, you revise them, and then you resubmit. So a lot of them, were since we're not changing floor plans, we're just adding service, it was very, I would say it was relatively easy in, in New York City. 
Outside of it, you have to go through a public planning process. You have to hire lawyers. You have to go before a hearing board. You have to present your, your case for why doing this. You have to tell them why it's not dangerous to have it. They're thinking about explosions and things like that. So it gets a lot more complicated actually out of the city. And cities actually are generally very amenable to these type of things, innovation. So so what are we, what are we on, Queens? For Queens, it's a suburban type of community in New York City. So we're looking for places where we could find, you know, shopping centers that had outdoor parking. One of the sites that I looked at was in Flushing. Flushing, I saw, was like a growing location. You know, it's near the LaGuardia Airport. And, you know, we were able to work out a deal with a developer there, F&T Development. So I always look for places where it sort of made sense where if someone goes in there for, let's say, an hour, it would be relatively affordable. So th- I, at that time in Queens, I think it was like $2 an hour. So they could charge it for like a, two hours and then they, you know, they, could, they could leave and just only pay like a $2 charge, get something to eat, and then come back. So we've, you know, that, that's a place in downtown Flushing that I found. And that's what I was always looking for is places that are affordable and made sense close to LaGuardia Airport. Queens and, and Brooklyn, you would have some of that as well, but you would try to look for at least, you know, again, these parking garages are, are these outside parking structures. And then in Staten Island and, and in the Bronx, you have a lot more land and you're definitely looking for something which is outside. In Staten Island, you're going to have charging at home actually. You're going to have home charging more likely because you're going to own a house. In Queens, you might you might own a house, you might live in an apartment. It's like quasi. And same thing in, in Brooklyn. In the Bronx, you're you're most likely going to own a, a house as well. Based on what you know now, is there anything that you think you know with the current technology and and the Nevi funds and all that other stuff would would you do it differently? What, what, and if it if you would do it differently, what would you do? It was, it was a really complicated process, as you can imagine, right? So we're dealing with all these like super savvy real estate developers throughout the city. It's, you know, no one wants to give up free land. No one wants to even talk to us because at that time we're still relatively new. So like, you know, right now with the cachet of Tesla, you can do a lot more things, you know, you can cut a lot more deals, you can, like start building in advance. Like for me right now, you know, being an owner of an engineering company, I would want to be involved a lot more on the ground up. When new developments are coming, I would just say, all right, let's look at curb. New developments are coming, let's 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 start talking to those developers right away. We're gonna put Tesla charging stations here. Boom. How about that? Like that's what I would do. I mean, this is it's almost like funny to say because everyone else had such like a engineering background. Understanding real estate is actually the nexus of how to be successful in my position back then. If you understand real estate, you understand what the developers are looking for, the people who are actually in charge of the land, then you would know where to put, you know, what developers are able to be worked with, what developers you could scale with. And scale with develop, scaling with developers lets you reach, like, you know, a developer in New York City, for example, Tishman, may have uh, properties throughout the, the country. So like what I would do is basically use the Tesla cachet and talk to developers now and cut deals a little bit easier this way. Working with the public was something that we had also tried doing, you know, that I probably didn't mention earlier. We work with New York City 
actually a couple times in their public garages because again these are affordable places where it's like two to four dollars an hour and maybe you could charge up your car as well but it was a little bit hairy in terms of how you're able to get these deals done because even if it's electrically feasible it may not be politically feasible you know and that was the only time where i felt like politics in new york city was a little bit hairy because you would have people be like well tesla is a luxury car brand what about universal uh component to it now we have the universal component to it where tesla's opening up the you know the charging network <laughs> that makes it a lot easier you know to be able to address these issues before sure so, yeah in fact i think like the first time that we did something with universal chargers for the entire country was this project i had in montauk where we worked with electrify america which is volkswagen so we had the the ccs plugs the the chatamo plugs and also the tesla plugs so we had all type of charging there that's like the first project i knew of <clears throat> that i knew of that had all all types of charging there we worked with volkswagen to actually get that um you know job done because montauk right they had asked for it so like that's something that you know we we had to end up doing for the town so that that's actually really interesting. I have, I have a question because EVGo has a Tesla plug on some of their chargers, but it's a Chatamo, so they just use the Chatamo adapter. Is that what e, uh, Electrify America did for in that instance, or did they have the, the actual full NACS plug? Is there anything else? Maybe I should have asked you, but I didn't. I could talk about a little bit about like subsidy programs and throughout the country, and also I, I just came back from. I just came back from a trip from Hong Kong and okay. they're doing a large EV subsidy program there, which is going to be, I think it's like a two to 3 billion Hong Kong dollars. So basically they're trying to provide charging for every level of every, every type of building there. Now the catch is in order to get the subsidy, you need to provide charging for every unit in that building from start to finish and you have to pay for it and then you get reimbursed. Wow. So it's Hong Kong. So it's sort of like New York city where you have like 1000 unit apartments. So we have all these applications right now that are applying for, for these, for these subsidies, right? They're like, wow, you know, if we could get like, you know, two, $3 million of free money, why not? Let's apply for it now. And you're realizing that none of it is feasible because no one has the electrical capacity. Like the first way I looked at the deal from the point of view of the real estate guy, and it's like, okay, just get the land, then you provide the utilities afterwards, right? You could do that for places that are in Long Island, in places which you have more land. Now, in urban dense areas, the first thing you have to think about is electrical feasibility, okay? So it's like, is it feasible electrically at the moment? How much charging can you put at the moment at the moment and do your calculations there so in all these buildings and right now only i think 10 buildings that are actually gone through out of the hundreds that are applying because they're only now noticing that none of them have power right so if none of them have power what do you do well you have load sharing load sharing is when you could balance the power out at different states of charge in you know, for, for, for the car and also splitting the current whenever 
you don't have enough power. But Hong Kong is making it so that you need full power. So, Bodhi, what that means is if it's a 40 amp, 40 amp charger, you need to be able to provide all the all 32 amps in that 40 amp circuit. You have to provide that for, and you have to do that for, let's say, like 100 cars in a 100 unit building. There's no places that I know of that are built like without design being involved that have that capacity. So no yeah. matter what, you have to do power upgrades everywhere. In order to You'd almost have, a, have to have a whole substation just dedicated to that building, depending on how what the size of the building is. Sometimes you might have to. Sometimes if you have a thousand units, you, you might have to do that. And then now that I'm on the contracting side, I'm like, I'm thinking and, and engineering side, the first thing I'm thinking of, well, do you have enough space in your electrical room? Yet, you know, like what are the runs going to be? Because that's going to be cost prohibitive as well. You know, first thing you have to do in, is see how much power you have. How much could you provide to your existing clients as of now? That's how I always think. Not the perfect solution, which is, you know, like the like the long term plan. You have short term, mid term, and long term. Short term for me is right now. Mid term is less than a year, and long term is in more than a year. And you. You almost never design for the long-term plans because you won't have the money for it. So that's in Hong Kong, that's what they're running into is everyone's like, wow, we want chargers everywhere. And there's the money there, but no one's going to be able to build it because they're going to realize that two, $3 million is not going to cover like, you know, hundred percent of your costs. It's going to cover maybe like 30% of your costs, you know? So now you, you know, now you just enter into a project, which is, you know, $6 million and and you have to pay everything up front and you're going to get reimbursed $2 million from it. And that's where they're running into. So subsidy programs, you know, same thing for New York City. Back then, NYSERDA had subsidy programs, like $7 million uh, subsidy program. And it's like providing charging and it had to be like a universal component to it. And the jobs have to be permitted and then signed off. Doing something like that quick and fast is actually a lot more amenable. You need to be flexible in your approaches to policy. When you're being inflexible or when you don't have engineers at least assisting in the analysis of this, that's when you run into these issues. So it's like you can't get the money out fast enough. In New Jersey, you ran into the same thing where it's like you have a lot of people that are reserving the money, but you can't get the money out fast enough because you reserve the money, but then you don't know how to actually execute upon it. So, you know, these are things I'm running into right now as a contractor, as an entrepreneur, as an engineer, you know. It's going to continue to be a problem if you don't have the right people in the right rooms, you know, making these decisions. Do you have any uh, current experience with like the NEVI programs from the federal government here in the U.S.? What's that? The NEVI money the for the supercharging across the country? No. Actually, explain that. I first time I heard it. So then I can't remember what NEVI stands for, but then NEVI funds are... Um, Basically, to provide super or charging, I don't know if it's all supercharging across right. the U.S. And each state had to come up with a plan, and then each state is allocated a certain amount of money based on their their plan and where they're going to put these chargers across big corridors. Okay, and it's billions of dollars. I don't remember how many. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you this: there's a scarcity. And, and this is like, I'm not sure how relevant this is. 
now that I'm on this side, there's a scarcity of talent that, that are involved in tackling these problems. And what I mean by that is there's a scarcity of electrical talent, the actual physical electricians that are actually doing the work. So you can have all these crazy programs, but if you don't have crazy programs to like supercharge the education part of it, where you have electricians that are in training to learn these skills, it, it doesn't matter. It's going to take forever. You know, we barely have enough electrical engineers to design this stuff. And the engineers that we have, you know, like I review the work, you know, just because like I've had to learn it. And it just takes a lot of training to get these prior, you know, these programs executed on. It doesn't matter how much money you're throwing at the problem. If you don't have in parallel, some sort of way to get these things done. So I think that's, that's the problem with these government programs. I'm working on some projects right now in Mountain View in, in California, in San Diego in California. And we're running into that too, where the subsidies are there, but people are really sitting on their hands in terms of how to actually get these things pushed, right? Because you have, you have to think about how to get any deal done and, and the, the, the people that involves, right? So let's say you have smart guys, you have, you know, you have people like you that, and people that like you who listen to your podcast and they're, let's say they're like either an engineer or they're a landlord. Okay. Those are two stakeholders. Okay. So, and then you have like, let's say the OEM or the, the manufacturer's rep that's selling the charter. Okay. After that, you have the engineer that designs it and they have the electrical contractor. And then you have the municipality of the, and the utility. So you have at least seven stakeholders here. Okay. And at the end of the day, I realized the electrical contractor now has been what used to be an antiquated position to a position of power. Because what I do right now is I do a lot of design build projects for that reason. Because all six other stakeholders don't actually want to talk to the electrical contractor because he might be a guy who not that well educated, you know, like a guy who dropped out of high school and just landed into that job. And you're having him to make these advanced calculations and design for you, you know, things like, you know, to push to market, right? Because you're, you're like, all right, I want charging stations here. And that guy may be good for, let's say, putting installing a charging station at your house without a permit, okay? But that guy is not going to be good for installing, let's say, 50 chargers in a fleet facility, you know, which stuff like, which I've done recently for like Avis. So what, what I'm noticing here is all these government programs, and I think that's why all these fleet vehicles are, fleet companies are, are rushing to try to get the money and they're trying to push the product out. They're running into a problem where since everything falls on the back of the electrical contractor, the electrical contractor may not be able to produce accordingly because they don't have that know-how generally. They're generally savvy enough to run like, you know, like a mom and pop business, but now you're putting a lot of weight on them to do more than just the one or one off charger to be involved in the design process, to be involved in the municipal process, being involved in the customer interfacing process. That's what I'm noticing is actually like going to be a problem because you're, you need more smart people to get into contracting at the end of the day. You need more 
like people with construction backgrounds, but actually understand people to be involved because you, you're putting too much weight on the electrical contractor who is not capable of juggling so many balls in the air. So that's what I'm noticing right now. All this money being thrown doesn't mean it's going to be pushed out faster. It's going to be a lot of broken promises. That's what's going to happen in Hong Kong. That's what's going to happen in California. That's what's going to happen nationwide. You're not going to get the labor force. You're not going to be able to mobilize the labor force fast enough. So, yeah. I, I think that's a good point in that most government-funded projects uh, end up with some waste. And to your point, I don't know that it's anybody that's out there that's trying to defraud the government. There's certainly people who do. But it's more of a, you know, this is a monumental task that many people on, on many stakeholders on all sides have maybe never even attempted or attempted at this scale. So I, I, I do see the broken promises. I mean, we had, you know, fiber put in with federal funds throughout the United States, and then they just left it dark. And now they're, you know, these fiber companies are capitalizing on that and charging buku bucks for fiber internet and we're left paying the bill we paid for it to go in the ground and now we're paying to, to use that fiber so I, I i get what you're saying there well edwin is there anything that you would like to uh promote i'm the ceo of ultimalighting.com we're an electrical contracting and engineering company we operate throughout the u.s and you can contact me for any questions about anything electrically based, especially in the EV space. My Instagram tag is electric brain lab. There's no projects that I won't take on. Actually give me your most complicated projects and I'll figure it out a solution. You know, that's how I present to everyone. So whoever has a complicated electrical problem that might need help, you know, please don't hesitate to contact me. Uh, my email is operations with an S at Altima, A-L-T-I-M-A lighting.com. So it's been a pleasure to be on your podcast, Bodhi, and uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with you in the future. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to thank Edwin Chow for coming on the show and being so generous with his time and his knowledge Edwin had a wealth of information, and I, I'm kind of thinking that we might hear from him again in the not-too-distant future. And if you're looking to connect with Edwin, I will put all of his information in the show notes to make that easier as well. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you to Edwin for being on the show and being so patient. We actually recorded this back in August and he was, I said, hey, I, I'm going to take a break in October. Do you mind if we wait a little bit? And uh, he was very patient because, like I said, I've been holding on to this interview for a while. So very nice of him to be so considerate. If you want to email me, you can. You can email me. It's Bodie, B-O-D-I-E, at 918digital.com. You can also find me on X at 918digital. And I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. And I will talk to you on Tuesday, where we're going to cover the NACS adapter. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.